Good morning. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Today we reach the beginning of a new section in Revelation where many people find to be probably the most interesting because it concerns future events. Today we're looking at the beginning of God's judgment upon the world. Uh, In chapter 5, we just read uh, last week with Matt that there was this longing to find out who is worthy to open this scroll, who is able to break its seven seals. And uh, as they search throughout all of heaven, they find no one is able except the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy to open and lease, uh, open and break open those seals, uh, you see in the last half of that chapter, there's a a singing of worship that's given to the Lord Jesus because he is worthy. He is worthy of all of our praise. And so chapter 6 begins with the Lord breaking open the scroll one by one to reveal what is to come. Now each of these seals is either a judgment upon the earth or it's a major event that will take place or it could even be the introduction of a person. The scroll today, like I said, it has seven seals, and today we're going to break open the very first seal and see what is to come. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the next major events on God's calendar of things to come. We talked a few weeks ago that there is the next major event is going to be the rapture. This rapture is detailed in 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says, "...the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel." And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So we have the rapture is the first thing that's to come, uh, immediately preceding the church age that we're in today. Um, and, And to kind of validate why we believe that as believers we'll be raptured uh, in heaven, we won't be going through this tribulation period, we look back to uh, God's faithful track record. We saw that uh, as, he, as he did with Noah and his family, that before the worldwide destruction, he gave the world 120 years to repent of their sins, to turn away from the evil they were doing, and to enter that boat. But once the doors had been closed, once no one in his family was in there, then and only then did God bring about that flood. Or you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, how God uh, said he was going to bring upon a destruction upon that city. And uh, it was only until all, all of the righteous people were taken out of that city, and then only once that happened, then God brought about the destruction that he promised he would bring. And so, you see here that This will be a time where believers will be with the Lord in the air, taken out of this world before destruction begins. Um, And then the next event after the rapture is called the tribulation. This tribulation period is a seven-year period that will come immediately after the rapture, and it's broken into two parts. Uh, The first half is described in Matthew 24 as the beginning of sorrows, and then the last half is known as the great tribulation. Each of these sections are three-and-a-half-year periods. And um, it's interesting because, actually, despite all of what we'll see coming in the future weeks, what we'll find is that first three-and-a-half years are actually more calm, more, um, if you will, just a quieter time, even though there's horrible things happening. 
in comparison to what will take place in the Great Tribulation, that things just intensify worse and things get worse and worse and worse as you make your way into that last three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. Um, the Great Tribulation is also sometimes referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. It is going to be a time uh, during the Tribulation where God will finally judge the earth for their wickedness, for the rejection of him. He will send terrible plagues, natural disasters, and there will be wars raging on, the world, raging on the earth. He will remove peace from the earth. There will be judgment after judgment that will happen during this seven-year tribulation period. And uh, following the tribulation period will be a time where there finally will be rest upon the earth. There will be a thousand-year reign where Christ, Jesus Christ will come and return to this earth with his saints, and he will reign over this earth a thousand years in a time known as the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign of Christ. And so that's briefly, I won't get into the future ones. Those ones will be covered in later chapters. But that is essentially the timeline of what is next, what's going to happen after this church age ends. I do want to address, though, something because as, before I start reading the judgments that come upon the earth, one could feel as though as we're going through it week after week after week that they, they might come to their, their mind, they might ask, well, how could God do such a thing? How could God judge the world like that? How, is that fair? Is God allowed to do something like that? Isn't, isn't God, after all, loving? Isn't he a good God? And uh, I think often we focus on just one aspect or one side of who God is. It is true, he is a loving God. He is good, he is faithful, he is kind, he is merciful. And yet, at the same time, God is also holy. God is separate from sins. God hates sin. And up until now, God has been patient. God has been merciful. God has been abundantly gracious, waiting for every last sinner to repent. No one could ever look at God at the end of time and say, you didn't give me enough time. You weren't patient with me. If you only had a few more hours, a few more days, a few more years, then I would have repented. He has given the world abundant, abundant amount of time to repent and turn away from their sins. But this will finally be a time where God will enact righteous judgment upon the earth. He will punish it for its abominations, for its decision to willfully reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when this time comes, when the tribulations begin, the world will know that it is God who is judging them. They will know that it is God who is enacting these judgments. It will be so clear to everyone that it is he who is judging them. Uh, it says in Revelation 6, it will be so terrifying that men and women will literally call upon the mountains and the rocks and say to them, fall on, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That is what the world will realize at that point, that it is not just natural disasters that just come and go randomly. This is God's hand at work here, judging the earth for what they've done. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, and this will be, like I said, righteous judgment. And so, yes, God is good, God is loving, but God is also just and he must punish sins. And there will come a day during this time where he finally will pour out his wrath upon the earth. So as I mentioned before, uh, the first 
the, the tribulation is broken into two parts. First three and a half years, Jesus refers to this time in Matthew 24 as the beginning of sorrows. And the, the word sorrows in this is the same word that is used to refer to a woman uh, as she gives labor, as she's uh, in the laboring process. I'm not a mother, but to anyone who is a mother, you can attest to the fact that the actual contractions during childbearing are actually pretty spread out. At least initially they are. It's maybe every, every hour or every 30 minutes. But as you get closer to the delivery, the contractions get more and more intense, and they begin to come with less and less time in between until finally it gets back to back to back to back, and it ultimately precedes the birth of a child. And these events in this seven-year period precede the coming of Jesus Christ. These events are telling us that the world is ending. The world as we know it is coming to an end. That Christ's judgments upon the earth are being brought forth. There is something that we need to understand about the judgments of God. The judgments will be for both unbelieving Jewish people as well as unbelieving Gentile people. These judgments are for the entire world that has chosen to reject him. And the judgments come in forms that are described as seals, trumpets, and bowls. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. The seven seals you could think of, as we saw earlier, the scroll that was uh, sealed up, and it, you could think of it as like a king when he wants to keep something confidential, they will put the wax together and they'll put their signet ring and seal up that uh, desire, seal up their wishes or their commands. Similarly, God's will, his command, his plan for the future is sealed up. And the only one who is able to break open the seal, open the scroll, is Jesus Christ. And so there are seven seals, each which I said is either a judgment or it's a major event that will take place or it could be the introduction of a person. When we get to that seventh seal, after the first six seals are broken, we reach that seventh seal. And as you notice, underneath that seventh seal, it encompasses all seven trumpet judgments. So the seventh seal, broken open, contains seven trumpets. Then we get through six of the trumpets, and when we reach the seventh trumpet, we come to find that the seventh trumpet actually contains seven bowl judgments. And uh, you could think of the bowls as God pouring out his wrath upon the earth. So when we describe the birth pangs of a woman in labor, the first, first half of the tribulation period, it starts off slow. Uh, in the first three and a half years, uh, we see only a few uh, seals being broken open. But as we move to the last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation, we see the judgments are rapidly intensifying. So you have kind of this, if you were kind of to do like a beat count, you would have kind of the first seals are like, that's just the seals going. And then as you get closer to the trumpets, you start intensifying, and then you get to the bold judgments, and it's just like back to back to back. And you see that things are only getting worse, but the judgments are only happening even faster. And eventually it will proceed uh, all that before the Lord comes. Uh, but this is, again, a time where uh, God is pouring out his judgment on the earth. 
it is really hard, I don't want to be too dogmatic about this, but it is really hard to differentiate between where the first three and a half years occur and where the last three and a half years uh, occur in terms of which seal and which trumpet and which bold judgment is opened. The only details we really get on this, we get a rough estimate of what it might be divided into. Um, Matthew, 4, Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famine, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. So that's what Jesus describes as the beginning of sorrows. If you look at parallel passages to Revelation in this chapter that we're going to read today, it seems as though the first three seals, at least, are described in these verses. But is that the halfway mark? We're not entirely sure in terms of which seal will be opened or, or whatnot. But it is an idea of these are just the beginning. Those things that are to come are only the beginning, and it gets worse as you get into the Great Tribulation period. The times on this earth get more and more grim. Whatever the case may be, you don't want to be there to witness it. You don't want to be there um, to endure this kind of uh, horrific judgment that will come upon the earth and if you don't know the Lord, this is your wake-up call. This is your warning. A holy, a righteous God will finally be judging the earth, and it will be a fearful thing. For those who are believers, as I said, uh, will be raptured with the Lord. We will be taken out of the way before any of this even happens. We also have to remind ourselves, as you think of the world and you think, you know, I don't know if it could really get too much worse. You have to realize that currently, right now, we also have to realize there's another event that's going to take place. The church currently acts as a restraining influence on the world. Not because people themselves are, are restraining it, but because they have the Holy Spirit indwelling within them. The indwelling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit allows the believers to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. They have this sanctifying influence on the world. And at the time of the rapture, God will remove that Restrainer, the Holy Spirit from the earth. The Holy Spirit indwelling believers plays that active role right now when the world wants to commit greater evil. The world is pushed back by the believers who say, no, we won't allow for this to continue on. They push and they stand against it. But there will come a time uh, where it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, it says, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. This is to say that the world right now really has no idea how evil and how, what, what potential it has for evil. With the restraining influence taken out of the way, with believers taken out of this world, you'll be left with nothing but unbelievers in this world. You'll be left with nothing but the world to do whatever it pleases, whatever it sees as good in its own eyes. Right now, you see in the world just lawlessness kind of brewing at the surface. But in these days, in these times, we will see what the world is capable of. Up until this point, though, like I said, we have, had, we have believers here on this earth. 
And God has kind of in some ways drawn a line as to how much wickedness Satan is allowed to do. We saw this with Job. God only allowed Satan to do so many things to inflict him with boils, to make his life miserable, to take things away from him. But there was a limitation as to how far Satan was allowed to go. He couldn't take Job's life, for example. And time and time again, God has restrained how far, how much evil was allowed in this world, how, much, uh, how far it was able to go in terms of committing sin. But with the church gone, with the Holy Spirit taken out of the way, sin will thrive and it will be like the days in Noah where the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was evil continually. That's, that's going to be the time that it will be like. So, it's an introduction, but I think it's helpful to kind of understand all that's to come before we break open this first seal. So let's, let's look in Revelation 6 now. Revelation 6, we're only going to be going through the first seal, and it's verses 1 and 2 that describe this first seal. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went about conquering and to conquer. So who is this person on the white horse? <clears throat> Upon uh, first glance uh, in this section, many people would suspect that, oh, it, it appears to be, this could be the Lord Jesus. Jesus, after all, is said to be coming on a white horse in Revelation 19. But it's different here because Jesus in Revelation 19 is talking about as one carrying a sword. And this one is carrying a bow. And Jesus is talked about as uh, having many crowns. This person has a singular crown. So who is this person? Who, who might this person be? Well, many very godly scholars and Bible believers believe that this is the Antichrist. This is someone who will be empowered by Satan himself and will have authority to go out and to conquer and to deceive many people. You see, he comes with a bow in his hand which appears to hold the threat of war and yet no arrows, which could indicate that he likely won't have to actually use any force to conquer. In fact, he'll be a charismatic, charming person who will win over the trust in the hearts of many nations. And with that, he goes about conquering with the promise of peace and yet, even right now, as you look, the world is pretty primed for this person to come about. The world is looking for someone to unify them together. They're looking for someone to lead them, someone to set things straight, someone to bring about peace, someone to be their deliverer, someone that they search for. This is exactly what the world right now is looking for. And in, in that search for someone, they will turn to this false messiah. It should be no surprise to us as believers that people will chase after a false messiah. In fact, even now, there are many antichrists who have come. If you read in 1 John 2, verse 18, John tells the believers, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come, by which we know that this is the last hour. In other words, we're living in the last hour. There are many antichrists among us. The term antichrist simply means those who are against Christ or those who oppose Christ. 
You can spot an antichrist by the false teachings that they preach. One of the false teachings that they support is mentioned in 1 John 2, verse 22. It says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the Father and Son. So ultimately, there will be this final antichrist riding on that white horse. But in the meantime, in this last hour, there are many antichrists. Many antichrists who deny the fact that Jesus is the Christ. They lie about his relationship with the Father. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Another sign or another way you can spot them, John later mentions just two chapters later in 1 John 4, saying, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh of God, or in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world. There are false teachers everywhere denying the deity of Christ, denying that he is the Son of God. And during this time, it says, not only will this be these, this anti-God um, agenda being pushed, there will also be people claiming also to be the Messiah. Uh, Matthew uh, 24, Jesus tells his disciples saying, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. So not only just the spirit of Antichrist in denying that Jesus Christ is God, but there's going to be those who claim to be the Messiah themselves in order to draw men and women away from the truth. Right now, we are just seeing the tip of the iceberg. We are in this final last hour, and it should be no surprise that, based upon what we see today, that there will be this final Antichrist, who will be the culmination of all those who hate God, who hate Christ. It's not as though one day it will just appear out of nowhere, an Antichrist, and it's something that the world has never seen before. All throughout history, there have been false teachers, false prophets, liars, false Christs who claim to speak for God, but in reality, they are influenced by Satan. One day, though, there will be this final horrific figure known as the final Antichrist. Right now, the, the world that we live in, there is this anti-God, anti-Christ spirit that is alive and well but it will come to a climax with this final character, who I said is, is called the Antichrist, but also goes by the names of the man of sin and the man of lawlessness, who is to come. So who is the Antichrist, and what do we know about him? I'm not going to go into any speculation today at all. This is purely just what we can find out from the Bible. So the first thing that we can say definitively is that he will be a man. First of all, we know he'll be a man because we can read in 2 Thessalonians 2. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So it's pretty clear from here that this is going to be a male figure. 
Uh, and many well-meaning Christians have, uh, you know, pointed to female leaders and different things, but the Bible clearly says that it is going to be a man. The next question then in your mind is, well, when will he be revealed? When will he arrive on the scene? Uh, this person may be very well alive today, but they have not yet been revealed to the world, and they won't be until, as it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, it says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only when he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So many believers, so believers the lawless one, the Antichrist will not be revealed until the rapture and, and when that restrainer is taken out of the way. Then and only then will the Antichrist make his introduction into this world stage. So our energy really, as we said earlier a few weeks ago, our energy should not be trying to figure out necessarily who is the Antichrist. Rather, we should look forward to Jesus Christ and the time that he raptures us to, with, to him in the, uh, in the air because right now it's something that's hidden. It's something that's a mystery until that time, until the rapture has happened. So I certainly hope that you wouldn't want to wait around to figure that out because then you won't be in heaven with the Lord. It's something that is hidden for now. It's a mystery until now, but after the rapture, it will be revealed who the Antichrist is. And what does he do? What, is, what does the Antichrist do? Well, he makes a seven-year covenant with Israel. Daniel 9 uh, tells us about this covenant. It says, Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel for one prophetic week, which is seven years. This is the seven years that are the entirety of the tribulation period. He will broker a treaty between the Jewish nation and the Gentiles, and this treaty will promise a time for Israel of peace, a time of freedom from war, freedom of bloodshed, peace among Israel and its neighbors. Also, just from reading this section, it's, it's interesting because... Um, this verse that we just read indicates that right before the Antichrist comes to power, or possibly even during this time, the Jewish temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD, will be rebuilt. Right now, there is no Jewish temple. There is a mosque on the top of the Temple Mount called the Dome of the Rock. And uh, there will be a day where there will be a rebuilding of that temple and it says here that the Jewish people will be going in and out, offering sacrifices to God as they used to do. Right now, it's not possible because there's obviously this, this Muslim temple. But one day it will be, and the Antichrist is going to be this charming, charismatic person, unlike anything they'd ever seen before. He'll be able to broker this deal. And um, by the way, peace among... Israel and its neighbors has been tried many times, and it's come very close at different times. There's some people who have almost got like 95% of the way there, and the deal was canceled. There have been many people who have tried to broker a deal, but this time this deal will happen. With the Antichrist, he will be able to bring together nations as it's never been done before. And uh, 
there is some defining characteristics of, of the, of the uh, Antichrist. It seems as though he is a peacemaker. It seems as though he actually looks like a pretty good leader. People would applaud bringing together nations. People would applaud peace. But it's his true intentions, his true colors that show up halfway through. And you see that kind of deviating line between the tribulation period. And this is when he really shows himself for who he is. Because halfway through that covenant, halfway through that peace deal that he makes with Israel, the Antichrist will break his covenant. He will bring an end to the sacrifice and the offerings that was once allowed in the temple. And uh, he will become very hostile towards the Jewish people. He will uh, actually, as we read, set up an abominable, idolatrous idol for himself in the temple and demand that that idol be worshipped as God. And anyone who refuses to worship the idol will be persecuted and destroyed. This event is of him breaking the covenant uh, is, like I said, that distinction between the first three and a half years, the beginning of sorrows, and the second three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. During this time, he will be revealed as the Antichrist, and he will reveal that his true mission is to destroy the Jews and any Gentile who is a true follower of Christ. And it will be a time of great suffering, terrible persecution. Which leads me to the next point that we know about who the Antichrist is and what he's all about. The fourth thing we know about him is that he opposes God and he opposes his followers. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, The Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. He is not just content with starting off with that gaining of political power, of bringing nations together for peace sake. He is actually wants to be God, and he professes to the world that he is God. The irony um, is that he claims to be the Christ, even though he opposes all that God stands for. As, it's, as it was said before, he blasphemously erects this idol in the temple and demands worship, and anyone who does not worship this, this, this idol will suffer at the very least economic sanctions, persecutions, and in most cases, death. And the, the, the idol that he erects will remain in the temple for the duration of the Great Tribulation period, that three and a half years. We learn also about who he is a little bit more in Daniel chapter 7. It says that he speaks pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years. The, uh, the Antichrist is a proud, arrogant man who will blaspheme the name of God he will be a man who poses all that God is, all that God stands for. And here it also mentions that he will oppose anyone who's a follower of his. And it's not, he's not just going to insult them or, you know, he will literally persecute them and put them to death. He even will try to change times and laws to allow himself to do as he pleases. The Antichrist is in absolute opposition to God to his saints, and to all of the plans of God. 
So that's the fourth thing. He opposes God. He opposes his followers. The fifth thing that we learn about the Antichrist is that he will be empowered by Satan himself. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, says, The coming of the lawlessness, the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The Antichrist will receive supernatural demonic power from Satan himself, and he will use those powers, those wonders, to deceive the world uh, along with it. The devil gives the Antichrist all power, signs, lying wonders. It's interesting to note that not all signs, not all wonders are of God. The devil and the demons, they are given an ability to perform miracles. The Antichrist, through the empowerment of the devil, will have this ability as well. The Antichrist will perform these lying wonders for the world in order to demonstrate that he is God. He's, he's using these to prove his case that he is indeed God, whereas he claims he's God. Um, and he, using these tactics, will deceive the world. He's going to pull their hearts away from the truth of God to be deceived by the lies of Satan. Not only that, the Antichrist will have assistance uh, in deceiving the world. He's going to be given a false prophet to help him along the way. Um, this false prophet, during this time, will use his satanic powers as well to validate the claims of the Antichrist as God. Some of the signs the Antichrist prophet will use, um, some of the abilities he has, are detailed in Revelation 13. It says that the prophet of, of the beast or of um, the Antichrist who is, uh, in the, is encapsulated within this beast, he, it says he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So the Antichrist will have this false prophet working alongside him, bringing down even signs like fire from heaven, giving life to a blasphemous idol in the temple. These will all be very believable signs to the world that remains on the earth. It will be very convincing, very misleading. Deception will win over the hearts of all mankind, and it will cause them to worship the works and the wonders of Satan rather than God. The sixth thing that we uh, learn or we, that we know about the uh, Antichrist, is that he will be the head of the revived Roman Empire. If we want to go back to Daniel, um, if you remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king at the time, had a dream. He was troubled by this dream. And Daniel is brought before King Nebuchadnezzar to interpret this dream. The dream details Gentile kingdoms that are either currently existing or that will exist until the end of the world. The first kingdom that he sees in his dream is a kingdom that is represented by a head of gold. This represented the current kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar was part of, the Babylonian kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was ruling as the king of that. 
Daniel also receives a supporting vision in Daniel chapter 7 that compares this kingdom to a lion with eagle's wings, suggesting the power, the swiftness that this kingdom would have. The second kingdom that he had this dream about uh, was detailed as a kingdom with chest and arms of silver. And we see the next area represents the Medo-Persian kingdom. Um, Daniel receives a supporting vision of a bear with three ribs in its mouth. And he compares it to um, the Medo-Persian empire, which was sacked, um, which sacked the Babylonian empire under uh, King Cyrus. The third kingdom that's described in this vision is, the, uh, is a kingdom that was comprised of a belly and thigh of bronze, representing the Grecian kingdom that was brought forth by Alexander the Great, who in 13 years nearly conquered the world as he went as far as east, the east of India, conquering. And um, the, the vision that he receives uh, of, of this area is, is spoken of as a leopard with uh, four heads and four wings, describing the uh, division of the land into four parts after the death of Alexander the Great. But this is where it really gets interesting, though, because after these first three kingdoms, and all these kingdoms have already taken place, we get to a now an ancient kingdom, but it has two parts to it. We see here this fourth kingdom is described as two legs of iron, depicting the ancient Roman Empire, the two legs representing the east and the western kingdom. But as you look down at the image that he had a vision of, he sees these feet. These feet are made of iron, but also it's mixed with clay. It's a weaker building material, and there's ten toes at the bottom. And um, you see that, you know, obviously clay and iron don't mix well together, but there's going to be this future kingdom where it's, it consists of these parts that don't adhere well, but they're, they're coming together. The feet speak of what many refer to as a revived Roman Empire. Daniel 7, verse 19, describes this fourth empire as a beast in his vision. I don't know if you can read it all, but I'll read it out loud so it's easier to see if you're not able to read it. But in Daniel's vision, he said, Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left, I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, the horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. So some interesting details about this revived Roman Empire. First notice, it's, it's powerful, it's destructive it's described as being dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong with iron teeth and bronze claws. The empire will crush and devour all of its victims. The ancient Roman Empire was represented by two iron legs. It came into existence, it ruled for a time, but now has ceased to reign as it once did. The vision here, though, is showing us that this now dormant world power will have a future in the future, it's going to come together as a revived form. The revived form depicts it having feet uh, with ten toes made of both iron and clay mixture. 
And in this revived form, we see ten horns, which is a reference to ten kings coming together. And once it comes together, a little horn, who in Revelation 13 we find out to be the Antichrist, will overthrow three of the horns, three kings he's going to overthrow in order to promote himself as the mouthpiece of this newly revived Roman Empire. The empire will be the last global power that exists before the return of Christ to this earth. The government of this last global power will be marked as having a blasphemous, tyrannical leader in the Antichrist who will demand absolute submission in financial, spiritual, and political aspects. This revived Roman Empire will essentially be the tool or the platform that the Antichrist will use to promote his anti-God agenda. Revelation 13 verses 1 through 4 gives more information about this empire. He says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon who came to power, his throne and great, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as it had been mortally wounded, and as his deadly wound and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, which the dragon we come to find is Satan himself, who gave the beast authority. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So the Antichrist will be the head of this revived Roman Empire, which will exist in a ten-kingdom form, Notice, as we saw earlier, the beast comes out of the sea, which is a reference to it being a Gentile nation. The beast is like a leopard, it says, describing how swift it is to conquer. It is like a bear, being powerful, ferocious, and it will be like a lion, powerful. Essentially, this empire that is to come to being in the end times will be a combination of all the world empires that came before it. In this, um, this empire, as we find, will be empowered by Satan himself. Satan will be giving it supernatural power to rule. And with the Antichrist as head of this world power, they will be given great power, authority, and a throne to rule the earth. Notice, too, in that last section, it said that the empire's deadly wound was healed. Many scholars have said that fragments of the ancient Roman Empire, they continue on to exist in separate kingdoms today. Its imperial form of government, however, has ceased to exist. It doesn't exist as it once did. Revelation here says that. It says one of its heads had been wounded to death. But there will come a time when these ten world powers come together that they will revive this Roman Empire, this government that had this deadly wound, it says, will be healed of its deadly wound, and the Antichrist will be the head of this new empire. As the head of the empire, what was the purpose of all this? What will he do as the head of this new empire? 
Like I said, he's going to use his agenda, his platform, to promote and do many wicked things. But there's just four things I just want to point out as to what he'll do with his power. The Antichrist will receive worship as God, first of all. If you think back to um, even the beginning of time, Satan himself has always desired to be like God. He wanted to be God. He has desired for the worship that God receives. He wants to be praised as God is praised. So the Antichrist will receive power from Satan and he will establish himself and claim to be God, fully asserting to the world that he is God, demanding worship as God, and Satan, it says, in turn, will be worshipped. He will be worshipped for uh, the power that he gives to the Antichrist. It says in Revelation 13, 4, So they worshipped the dragon, that is Satan, who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? Uh, even more than that, he, he will receive worship as God. In 2 Thessalonians 2, it says that the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple, showing himself that he is God. So this whole thing is very satanic. This whole thing is showing the world lying wonders, deceptions, and forcing people, or really making people believe uh, that he is God, so that they follow after him. Essentially, the world would not listen to God. They would not believe the true God. They would not believe the truth of the gospel. And so now the world will believe the lies of Satan. So the first thing that he'll use is he'll receive worship as God under the head of this empire. The second thing is he's going to do is that he is going to use his worldwide stage to blaspheme the name of God and all that God stands for. Revelation 13.9 says, Then he, that is the Antichrist, opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So he's going to use this platform to just tear down the name of God, tear down anything associated with God, his followers, even the temple, even angelic beings and heavenly hosts. It says any of those who dwell in heaven will be blasphemed by this world figure. He then uses, the third thing he does with his power is that he makes war against the believers. Anyone who professes the name of Christ will be at war with this Antichrist. It says in Revelation 13, 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. There is going to come a time uh, during the tribulation period where there will be people who truly do come to find a savior. They will truly find uh, their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will read either through scripture or through um, messages that maybe are left on this earth. They will have a saving knowledge and they will come to a real genuine belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who does that though, anyone who truly accepts Christ, he is going to be at war with the Antichrist and he will, as it says, he will uh, overcome them. He will kill them. Anyone who's, anyone who's not willing to bow down and worship this one as Lord, anyone who refuses to bow down to the idol that he erects will be killed, will be destroyed. The last thing that we know about this platform is that he is given worldwide authority for three and a half years. Complete worldwide dominion. The second half of verse 7 in Revelation 13 says, and authority was given him over every tribe 
tongue, and nation. He is given this great power during that last three and a half years, that great tribulation. He is given authority by the devil. And I actually, I find it interesting because as you look at the world history and you think about the first time that Jesus came to this earth, it was Satan using the Roman Empire as his platform, as his tool to try and defeat the Lord. As you think back to the king wanting to destroy Children under two years old in Bethlehem. You think about then on the cross, him trying to defeat the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking that he had won the victory with him in the grave. And yet, as we know, Satan tried to attack, tried to stop God's plans from happening, and yet Satan was unsuccessful. And yet again, though, in the second coming, in this final Roman Empire, this revised version of it, Satan will again use it as his platform as his means to wage war against the Lord for a final time, to try and defeat again God's plans. And yet again, as we read later on in this book, Satan and his enemies will be defeated. But you see through it, though, Satan's purposes throughout time have always been opposing God. He's always been against God, always trying to stop him from completing his work, from fulfilling prophecy that he said will take place. The purposes of Satan are evil. They're wicked. Satan will use this Antichrist as a vessel to do all he can to stop God, to uh, attack God's name, to attack God's people, to attack the tabernacle, to attack heavenly hosts. The purpose um, of the Antichrist is our, our seventh point, if you're following along with that. The Antichrist's purpose and goal is to draw people away from the truth using deception. The Antichrist is attempting to take the world down a path of eternal destruction, and he will be quite successful at it. This in turn, though, is a judgment upon the earth. The world would not accept Jesus Christ as Lord. They refused to believe the truth. They would not accept the offer of salvation that God freely extended to them. So now they will believe the lies of Satan. Um, we read this verse earlier, but I wanted to just highlight it again. It says um, in 2 Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this goes along with all the signs and all that we've heard of the Antichrist and what he's doing. People living during the tribulation period are people who did not trust God during the period of grace, during this church age that we presently live in. Those who maybe went to church and they had gone every Sunday and they listened to the words and they just never made a decision for themselves to trust God. Or maybe they had gone to camp or maybe their, their neighbors had been witnessing to them for years or they had godly grandparents who witnessed to them and they never bowed the knee. They never turned to God fully. There are many people who will be in this tribulation period who know that they are sinners realize what God's solution to their sin problem is, 
But upon hearing that truth, they chose willfully to reject God's solution. They did not receive the love of truth that they might be saved. So God judges the world for the rejection of his son. They would not believe the real and true God. They would not submit themselves to his lordship over their lives. They would not bow the knee to Christ. And because they hardened their hearts towards God, God allows them to be deceived. He allows them to believe that lie. The world's hatred for God's word and their love for sin and its pleasure, they love that more. They love that more than Christ. And so we will see the Antichrist with his signs that he can be reformed. He will convince the world then that he is God. And it's as if God is saying, fine, if you don't want me, if you don't want to believe the truth, if you don't want to forsake your sins and all the pleasures of it, then that's your choice. But you will be condemned by following the lies of Satan, who is really the exact opposite of all that God stands for. This is nothing new, though. If you think back to Egypt, God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh had willingly hardened his own heart. And people during this tribulation period who have come out of this period of grace, they have already hardened their hearts. They've said no to God. And so all God is doing here is just hardening their hearts along with them. God is again saying, if you will not turn to me, then I will allow you to believe the lies of Satan. Finally, though, the most probably encouraging part about what we know about the Antichrist is what happens in the end, the fate of the Antichrist. What is the end for him? 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Lord will destroy the Antichrist and he, when he returns in his second coming. Revelation 19 also gives us more information. We come to find that the Antichrist and really all of the rulers of the world who come together to fight against the Lord Jesus... When he returns to the earth, it says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, that is the Lord Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Finally, Revelation, the last sight we have of the Antichrist is in Revelation 10. It says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire with brimstone where the, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the conclusion to his final, that's his final end that he has. That is the fate of the Antichrist. But it is also the fate of those who reject the truth of God's word and choose willfully to believe the lies of Satan. As we started off, the first thing you see of the Antichrist is one coming, promising peace, promising rest. But as we've seen, he is nothing but the complete opposite of that. All he brings is eternal destruction for those who follow after him. He claims to be God, but he's a false messiah. On the other hand, though, God's offer of salvation is simple. Choose today to have your sins forgiven. 
Choose today by believing upon what Jesus Christ did on that cross for your sins. He offers you eternal life. He offers you rest for your soul. He offers you true lasting peace. Accept his offer. Otherwise, you have the option. You have the choice. You have the free will to reject him. But in turn, he will give you the desires of your heart. If you say, I don't want to be in the presence of this God. I don't want to be near him. Then he will give you exactly what you want. He'll place you in an area where you will forever be separated from the God who loves you, from the God who died for you. He will place you like the Antichrist and his followers in the lake of fire, forever tormented, forever separated from a God who loves you. It's a foolish choice, but God gives you that free will. He gives you that choice to decide for yourself, my free gift of salvation or eternal damnation. All of this, though, should really get you starting to think about your eternal soul. Thinking about where do you stand? When you take that last breath on this earth, when your heart finally stops, where will you be? Will you be with the Lord forever in heaven? Or have you not figured that out yet? Have you not decided yet to make him Lord of your life? Have you not fully trusted in his saving work on the cross for your salvation? God is waiting for you today. If you aren't saved, this is your wake-up call. Consider your eternity and place your faith in the true living God, the one who died for you, the one who desires a relationship with you. It says he does not desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You don't want to endure the horrific experiences of what will to come. This is only the first seal. There are six more, and then there's seven trumpets, seven bowls. It gets worse from here. This is only the beginning, but you don't want to go through this. Don't go another day without having a relationship with God. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. Lord, we um, realize that it will be a terrible time on this earth when, uh, when finally uh, Satan will just be let loose and allowed to to do what he desires to do. And Lord, there will be many who will follow after him. And Lord, we are so thankful that as believers we have the truth that we will be with you in heaven, not enduring such a horrific time. But Lord, I just ask if there's anyone here today who has not trusted in you, who has not placed their faith in you, that Lord, today they would trust you. Today they would believe upon you and escape the wrath that is to come. Lord, we just thank you for your word and we look forward to the truth of it in the coming weeks. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.